Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. If country borders and grids can fascinate you and state names intrigue you, if atlases, globes, city plans, subway maps, and of course, world maps are your thing, if you can name the capital city of Namibia, and if you get giddy about flags, you are in the right place. This is Map Corner, a podcast about the love of maps brought to you by Royfield Brown and Claire Asprey. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to Map Corner. I'm Royfield Brown, who is Wadham Coastal Exchanges. Yet again, or for the more conventionally minded, 33.8044 degrees north or 122.1212 degrees west which puts me back in lovely oakland oh i love oakland the sun is out the sky is blue this place does not have a winter and with me i have the map mistress who is claire asprey where are you today claire i'm in my normal 52.1 degrees north and minus 0.5 degrees west clapham bedfordshire where it is definitely winter I've never thought about it before, but the very fact that you're minus, that means that you are just to the east of the Greenwich Meridian. Yes, indeed. Hmm. Must be. Only very, very marginally, though. Yeah, very marginally. Like, if I was looking at a map and where I think that you are, I would have put you slightly to the west. But there you go. All that curvature of the earth and all of that. You're just very slightly to the east. Anyway, yeah, well, you're not listening. We were talking about two degrees west last time. <laughs> Claire, I've probably listened to that interview more than anybody because I edited the Mama Jammer. So, so don't, don't be having a go at me. But, folks, the very fact that we can get nerdy about uh, coordinates and exact geographic uh, directions and placements, sorry, is because we are cartophilic nuts map corner is our podcast it's a podcast dedicated to the love of maps and all things cartophilic so pete is your prediction folks you're in the right place now this week we have a theme claire it's gender and geography which you came up with indeed uh, a great alliteration now why are we talking about gender and geography well it's soon international women's day uh, the beginning of march mm-hmm. and i thought it would be an interesting one to look at partly because in doing kind of a year's worth of background map finding research interviewee hunting and so on for Mm -hmm. the podcast I can't help but observe that the uh, cartographic field and things associated with that are 
quite blokey on the whole mm. not entirely and there are some obviously notable and amazing exceptions but um that's fine it's what people what floats people boat but uh it would be nice to um big up the women a bit so um prepare to be taken down with the patriarchy as i control the entire podcast <laughs> from here on in <laughs> i'm only joking you've done more prep than me <laughs> I believe the youth of today call it a sausage fest or a sausage party. It's just full of blokes, isn't it? This this field fundamentally, if it's not full of blokes, um, it feels like it is. Historically, it definitely has been. Yeah. But we can talk about maybe some of the reasons why that is a little bit later. Folks, don't forget to review us on Apple iTunes. It's a great way for us to expand our listenership. That's what it does. If you go on to um, Apple Podcasts, go write us a review. And um, and then if you send us a message via the website, go on to mattcorner.space, it's that funny URL, and then go on to contact us and just say, oi, mush, we've written a review. And then we'll mention you on a forthcoming show. So this episode, we have a call, just the one, from Pat in America. Don't forget to give us a call. Uh, then you can get on next time. Perhaps you'll have views on the you know, gender and geography issue for next mm. time. Potentially. A whole load of stereotypes are going to be dragged up, not even potentially, but actually looking at the, these studies. Give us your calls. Uh, we need your reactions to uh, this uh, this month's show, but also to your observations and your questions to do with map-related trivia, travel and geographic observations. You can do that by going onto mapcorner.space and leaving us a message on SpeakPipe. It's a little red tab over on the right. We always start each show with uh, an interview. And here is me speaking to Valerie Hudson from the Women's Stats Project, which began in 2001. Valerie, as a Brit over here in your wonderful country, I'm somewhat confused about presidential schools. Looking at the footer on your email, it doesn't half make for long reading. Um, so what exactly is the Bush School? And what is your connection to it? Yes, well, presidents in the United States um, are uh, given a presidential library, if you will, um, because uh, the National Records Act in the United States, you know, uh, mandates that there be an archive for each president's administration. And so um, presidents usually negotiate with um, typically universities in mm. order to set up their presidential library. And so uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, or Bush 41, as we, we call him here in the States, um, set up his library here at Texas A&M University. Um, and along with the setting up the presidential library, presidents often decide that they're going to have like, you know, a research center or some sort of, you know, uh, outreach or some, some initiative that goes along with the presidential library. And so um, Bush 41 decided that he wanted his legacy to be a school of public service. That is a school that would, you know, put forward, you know, generations of new leaders that were devoted to the cause of public service as he had been. Uh, and so right next to the presidential library for George Bush is his school, the Bush School of Government and Public Service. You have a place in a project called the Women's Stats Project, which has been running since 2001. What is the Women's Stats Project? Oh, well, I am glad you asked. 
Back when I was going through my graduate education in security studies and international relations, the idea that you would talk about women was really, really foreign. Um, mm. You could have taken every single class in my graduate school and you would have never known there were women on the planet Earth. Um, so it was very much like these two spheres just did not intersect at all. And so in the late 1990s, uh, I began to feel that that was wrong. And certainly there were other people in international relations also thinking that. But mm -hmm. I and my co-author, who is actually uh, a UK, um, works in the UK. She's at the University of Kent at Canterbury. Her name is Andrea Denbor. Uh, Andrea and I uh, wrote a book that looked at how the alteration on a massive scale of China and India's sex ratios mm -hmm. uh, through the devaluation of female lives, sex-elective abortion, female infanticide, was actually creating and would create serious security concerns for those countries and for their region. And so that was our first sort of linkage between, so what's going on with women and what's happening with the nation state? Is there a linkage between the two? After the success of that book, um, I then began to ask, well, are there other forms of discrimination and oppression against women that have an, an effect on national security? And so uh, I first decided I was you know, going to compile some data on women. And back in 2001, to be perfectly honest with you, there wasn't a heck of a lot. Certainly was not what we have today. So we began the Woman Stats Project, which was an attempt to chronicle and compile information about all lots of varieties of, of dimensions of women's uh, situation, status and security. And then we would be able to use that data and relate it to national security outcomes. So while we started with two KPIs and an Excel spreadsheet, we've now, you know, really gone beyond that. Being a typical bloke and not necessarily thinking of the female perspective and specifically to do the mapping, I... The only map that I was really aware of to do with anything to do with uh, um, female gender was actually a female suffrage map, which mm. shows you the years of which various countries have given women the vote. And you're completely right, you know, that um, our view of the world, let alone of the mapping of the world is always from um, a male perspective. So um, looking at the, the content, the output that uh, you guys have actually done doesn't half make for kind of scary viewing. So where it's the female genital cutting uh, map, um, which I think you did in 2015, like the actual prevalence of that kind of uh, barbaric institution, you know, I, I thought it was just, the Horn of Africa, but it's much wider. So tell us about, um, before we get onto specific maps, tell us about your methodology, how you've actually worked. Um, you said you started off with, a, with an Excel spreadsheet. Um, the world has, has moved on considerably since then, I'm sure, as, as your expertise in this matter. But tell us about your methodology. And then maybe tell us also about the, your kind of editorial process as well. Yeah, well, we've really grown from our early beginnings. I mean, we mm -hmm. now, instead of two KPIs, we have two dozen. And instead of one country, we have seven countries represented. 
among our co-PIs. And so the, you know, the data is really an adjunct to the research of the, um, the co-principal investigators of the project. So the data and the research kind of are feeding into each other constantly. So you're actually going and doing the research as well. It's not as if you're taking published data, then just mapping that. You're actually going off and looking at specific issues to do with women and then uh, doing the research on that and then mapping it. Yeah. So what we do is, um, you know, we we've come up with over 300 variables that we think are important to understanding the situation of women. And a lot of these are variables that are not really looked at. So, for Mm -hmm. example, patrilocal marriage. How often is it that when a, a young woman is married, she goes and lives with her husband and his family, right? Mm-hmm. And certainly those kinds of societies have special challenges for women. Um, so first out, we go and we compile all the existing data on the prevalence of patrilocal marriage. Uh, and as you can imagine, the statistics are very soft and squishy. And mm-hmm. so then we have to triangulate that with other data about practices and laws and inheritances, you know, so we get get a better picture of the prevalence of patrilocal marriage. And then once we've kind of compiled everything that's existing, we probably go out and ask country experts for their opinion about whether patrilocal marriage is still prevalent, whether it's, you know, diminishing. So you know, a combination of us going out and collecting data as well as compiling data, we then have a whole bunch of information. Then what we do is we create what we call a scale rubric, which is if we wanted to compare the prevalence of patrilocal marriage, um, could we come up with a three or four or five point scale that would allow us to compare countries? Uh, And once we have that, then we go into that big hunk of data, right? That big you know, old treasure chest of data that we've collected and compiled. And we begin to to scale that. Once we have those scales, then we can walk over to our map creator right there on site. And we can instantaneously create a map of the prevalence of patrilocal marriage. So we're actually, in terms of research, while we love all of our raw data on practices and laws and prevalences, what we really love is the scales that we've been able to create from all of that data, Mm -hmm. because it's the scales that then allow us to map. Gotcha. And some of those scales have, um, for me anyway, uh, are a little bit of a surprise, you know, living, um, being British, and then living in the United States, you kind of think that um, on just about every scale, and and let's put... um, a loaded word, you know, the scales which are good, that let's say Britain or the United States would um, always be in the top percentile, but they're actually no, not. No, 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 no. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> that that was a real surprise for me. And actually it's countries, it's the Scandinavian countries and, and Australia and New Zealand that generally are, are the most open. So um, give us a, a sense of, let's say, um, a couple instances where, um, America somewhat falls down and might surprise people. And, and then tell us about specifically about the issues to do with that, issues to do with, with women then afterwards. Sure. Well, one where the U.S. really falls down on, and I don't think it's very much of a surprise, is mm-hmm. the high level of violence against women. Um, and, and, you know, in comparison with, as you say, countries in Scandinavia, even though countries in Scandinavia do have violence against women, uh, America looks, you know, really not very good. 
-hmm. So that's probably one that might be a surprise to Americans when they looked at a global map and they discovered that their country is, you know, not at the lower end, but more at the higher end. There are mm -hmm. also some other surprises that I think you, you might find. So, for example, cousin marriage, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, the United States has no federal law against cousin marriage, and there are many states in the union that allow cousin marriage, while there are other states in the union that don't allow cousin marriage. Uh, and so the, the picture for cousin marriage in America is quite, uh, quite diverse. And so it, um, America looks uh, different on that map than a mm -hmm. number of other countries in the OECD might look. Um, another uh, place is prevalence of polygyny. Uh, so while polygyny is illegal in the United States, enclaves of polygyny are tolerated in the United States. Uh, and therefore, um, the United States might look a little worse on that map than most Americans might assume. So tell us about your methodology to do to do with the scales, per se, because what I'm looking at um, is one of the things which us map uh, heads, us cartophiles absolutely love, um, isn't just looking at the, sh at the shape of the globe rendered flat on a piece of paper, but it's also like the colours used. Um, but the, where the colours are important here is exactly what you said before, is the scales. So tell us kind of the methodology of working out the scales and then flesh it out with a, a real example for us. Well, that question actually shows that you really know what you're talking about because that's the magic, right? The scales <laughs> are actually where all of the action is. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and usually when, uh, you know, I present to a more naive audience, they, they just sort of take it for granted and nobody ever asks me about the scales. Mm -hmm. But you are absolutely right, which is... I'll tell you what, you, Valerie, you are going about things the right way. You are <laughs> flattering the host of the podcast. Well done. <laughs> We'll have you back. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, but you are right that um, the it's a science and an art to make a scale mm -hmm. um, because what you're looking at for a scale is that it has to be conceptually meaningful, conceptually valid, mm -hmm. and at the same point, from a data sense, it's got to be fairly reliable and replicable. Yeah. Um, and that's often tough when you're talking about um, things that have to do with women, um, because a lot of times the data, hard data about what's going on with women is completely missing. One mm -hmm. of my graduate students is currently writing an article. We had her scaling the prevalence of rape uh, across the 176 countries in our in our report. And you might think to yourself, well, rape is a crime, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to have hard crime statistics about rape. Ha, 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 ha. No, you are not. <laughs> In fact, there were um, approximately uh, 80 countries for which it was almost impossible to get any understanding of what the prevalence of rape was in the society. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, you know, the reported rape rates don't look anything like the estimated rape rates. So you're dealing with a subject that is extremely hard right, to, to come up with a, with a hard numeric scale for. And that's one of the reasons, since the data on women is just so awful, that mm -hmm. we went to um, an ordinal scale, right, where we're making sort of broad brush 
um, distinctions between nations. Usually our scales are, are three-point or five-point scales. Those are the majority of our scales. And we feel that that allows us to have a sense of both conceptual validity along with reliability and replicability. Oftentimes we have what we call univariate scales, which mm-hmm. are scales that are merely on one particular phenomenon, such as female genital cutting. But even with female genital cutting, you, you have to have two dimensions in your scale. You have to ask, is this legal or illegal? Because that tells you something. Mm-hmm. And then secondarily, you want to know what are the estimates of the prevalence uh, what percentage of women in the population are likely to have been cut? So even within a univariate scale, such as female genital cutting, you've got two, you may have two dimensions going on. When you have a multivariate scale, which we consider to be our crown jewels, simply because it takes us blood, sweat, and tears to create a multivariate scale. Suppose mm-hmm. you're interested in the overall physical security of women. Well, you're going to want to look at things like domestic violence. You're going to want to look at things like rape. You're going to want to look at things like femicide. You're going to want to, you're going to, want to look at a lot of different uh, kinds and forms of violence against women, uh, each of which is going to have data problems, right? Mm-hmm. And then somehow you've got to put it together into a conceptually valid scale that allows you to say, well, you know, suicide may be a huge thing in this country, but there's very little femicide, you, you know, so how does that balance out? You know, how do you, you um, have different countries that have different problems um, and compare them in a meaningful sense? Uh, and that it, I think is, is both an art and a science to do that. But you are right. Uh, in fact, the if you and I were, you know, sort of sitting down together in the same place, what uh-huh. you and I would be looking at is our code book that explains the scaling rubrics and justifies them and shows how that we've attempted to make them reliable and replicable. That's where the magic is. Without wanting to put too fine a point on it. As I said, because you can look at these maps um, at womanstats.org and it does make for interesting, fascinating and illuminating uh, viewing and reading. Have you done a compendium, almost like a global map, you know, to to show overall which countries are uh, better for women uh, still have a way to go, et cetera, et cetera. Is there like an, a, a catch-all overall, and there's a global map uh, of the statistics and the data which you've uh, uncovered? Yeah, no, no superstructure there because I think it really depends on on what you think what you think the major subordinating mechanisms for women are. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, if I have a um, a, a bad physical security of women country, you know, mm-hmm. like the United States, which is really, I mean, and, not ma- the and first, that was, the, that was one the of the maps which really, really surprised me. That right. One. But, but and, then and they I'll... have lots of legal protections for women. Women's property rights are protected. Mm. There's no female genital cutting. There's not a whole lot of polygyny. I mean, you know what I mean? So, uh, I, we, we have not yet come to the, the position where we could say, where that country ranks, right, in terms of how bad or how worse it is than another country that might have better physical security of women, but really, you know, like Saudi Arabia, 
right? Women can't drive. Women can't travel without permission. Women have very low property rights, right? So how how do you trade off violence and say uh, the ability to be a uh, you know, something other than a legal minor under your, your uh, system's law. So you're right. We're not, we're not there yet because mm-hmm. I don't know how to compare um, differences on a, these variety of dimensions. Okay. Um, if there were two maps, two data sets that you're most proud of um, in the, the time that you guys have been compiling these, uh, what would it be and why? It's our crown jewels. It's our multivariate scales. There's there's no one else that okay. has an open You can't talk security. to me about the scales again, Valerie. You have to say it's a you, you gotta go for like a couple of maps. Just give me a couple oh, of maps. Yeah. All right. so one is that one. one. The second one I'm really, really proud of mm-hmm. is inequity in family law. Nobody else has an overall scale of how inequitable family law is for women. And we look at all sorts of things. We look at divorce and child custody and property rights and you know, you name it. Mm-hmm. And that's a really stunning map. Um, and furthermore, that map is, is not just in law, but in practice. So in addition to asking what the law is like, we yeah. also ask, is the law actually obeyed, yes. right? Which is the farther shore that you always have to ask concerning women. You know, there mm. may be wonderful laws on the books, but everybody knows that on the ground, you know, a woman cannot expect that law to be enforced, Uh, A great example, of course, is India. Sex-selective abortion has been completely illegal and criminalized since 1994, right? But the sex ratio in India is now worse than it has ever been in recorded history. So obviously people are not obeying the law. So that inequity in family law and practice, I think, is just a gigantic contribution looking at how inequitable the law is and also, you know, what the situation of women on the ground. And then lastly... Um, the mm-hmm. scale that underpins our, our forthcoming book from Columbia University Press called The First Political Order, How Sex Shapes Governance and National Security Worldwide, is what we call the patrilineal fraternal syndrome, where we take uh, 11 subordinative mechanisms uh, concerning women, um, in, including women's property rights, polygyny, patrilocal marriage, bride price and dowry, sex ratio alteration, just the mm-hmm. most subordinative practices at, um, of all, and say, where do countries rank on, on that scale? So those are the three that I want you to look at when you go to our maps page. Well, you are, you've obviously done a few of these before, uh, Valerie, interviews, that is, because not maps, you've done a whole load of maps, but interviews, because you're nicely starting to wrap things up by talking about the book. That's going to be my next question. So uh, so tell, tell us about the book that you guys actually have out. Um, how, long was the, how long has that been in conception, gestation and birth? Oh, thank you. Yes, you know, um, perhaps it's only for women authors, I don't know. But every book feels like a very long pregnancy, a very long gestation. And then you finally get that baby. So we're kind of at uh, almost the nine month mark with the latest book. That is, it's coming um, out in March 2020. So we're almost mm-hmm. there. We just uh, did the copy edits, so we're we're ready for birth. And it's uh, actually it's kind of our mag- magnum opus here at the Women's Sets Project. Um, we had uh, four years of funding from the U.S. Department of Defense under their oh. Minerva Initiative. They've they reached out to social scientists to mm-hmm. you know authorize certain kinds of research and. 
the Department of Defense wanted to know whether we could actually uh, demonstrate in rigorous statistical fashion whether there was, in fact, a linkage between the subordination of women and the insecurity of their nation states. So uh, they gave us a big pot of money and we went to town. We had like 30 um, graduate and undergraduate students working for us. Mm-hmm. We worked solid for four years and um, we have put together what we consider to be um, a pretty definitive case that what you do to women is what you end up doing to your nation state. So if you curse and subordinate women, you are going to end up with a cursed and insecure nation. Uh, so that's coming out in March. Uh, we also have two other books that have been very well received. Uh, Sex and World Peace, which we published in 2012, is, again, it's sort of an overview of the extent to which uh, women still face um, oppression and subordination worldwide and how that affects uh, their countries. And then another book that we put out was called The Hillary Doctrine, where we looked Mm -hmm. at Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's four years in that office and asked what she was able to accomplish for women and what she was not able to accomplish for women and what we learned from um, her experience. Here's a question for you, Prof. Um, Is there any correlation between a country having an elected... Uh, female head of the executive. Got to be careful, not necessarily head of state. Okay, so we're not talking about queens per se. Um, and its treatment of women. Um, no, but if you turn to the legislature, there is some evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, that is to say, most female chief executives are still coming to power in nations where there is not a tradition of female leadership. Uh, and as such, we, we don't see any sort of market change in their kind of uh, approach to, say, foreign affairs or things of that nature. But what we find in the, uh, with legislatures is if you start getting a critical mass of women, um, so if you get above 30 percent mm-hmm. uh, you start getting a change in the proportion of legislation that deals with things such as welfare issues, um, anti-corruption issues, legal protections for citizens. Those kinds of things are much more emphasized in legislatures where females have uh, a greater share of representation. Uh, Professor, Valerie M. Hudson, uh, thank you for coming on to Map Corner and um, fleshing out, illuminating, enlightening and educating us um, about the inequities that women face throughout the globe and how it can be mapped out. Oh, you can, um, you can tell people that uh, all of our data and all of our maps are freely available on our website. If you want to use our maps, you go right ahead. Uh, we have... Um, very nice um, high-resolution PDF maps uh, that are downloadable from our website. We also have what's called a map creator, so that if you needed a a customized color set, so for example, for our book, we needed uh, grayscale maps, you can use our map creator to create the maps in any color scheme that you would like. Thank you very much for having me.
It was an utter pleasure to speak to Valerie. She has a, a wonderful title. She's a university distinguished professor, not even a professor, but you know, a distinguished one, and that is her title. And she's the director of Women, Peace and Security at the Department of International Affairs down there in uh, Texas A&M University. Proper, proper prof she is and it was actually lovely to speak to go on to womanstats.org to go and have a look at all of their research and all of their maps it's an utter treasure trove if you are into uh maps and mapping and if you're not why are you listening to this podcast so just go there so moving on from texas we go up to kielder which is in the north of england this is glenn and his audio postcard hello to all at map corner It's Glyn here. I'm calling in from London, where it's a clear night. As I was walking home this evening, I could uh, clearly see the moon and uh, the constellation of Orion and a few other stars. But this time last week, I was a little bit further north, 55.2 degrees north and 2.6 degrees west, to be more precise, at the Kielder Observatory the Kielder Dark Zone in Northumberland. It was a cold and blustery night, uh, quite cloudy, but when the clouds parted, uh, then you really could see the night sky in all its glory. I've never seen stars so bright or so numerous. Not only could you see Orion, but you could also clearly see the colours of the stars of Orion and the Horsehead Nebula in Orion's belt, not to mention the nearby Pleiades. The observatory is set on a hill surrounded by forest and the dark zone uh, is enhanced by there being very little artificial light uh, in the surrounding area. It's sparsely populated but there are also no illuminated road signs and no street lighting for miles around. It's certainly a very special place to visit. The observatory is near Kielder Water, which is the largest man-made lake by volume in the United Kingdom, uh, created in the 1970s by the damming of the River North Tyne. And there are many features of interest around the lake for the map enthusiast. There are roads that appear from nowhere and then slide back under the waters a little bit further along and a disused railway line that does the same thing. Uh, No villages were actually um, flooded to create the reservoir, but a number of farms were lost. And at the west end of the lake, there's a village called Buttery Hall, which is clearly relatively recent. And when you look at it on a map, it looks like a planned village. And I did wonder whether that was created for the residents of farms that were lost. But apparently that's not the case. It was created for uh, workers of the Forestry Commission uh, when the area around there was developed uh, as the Kielder Forest. It's certainly a very beautiful area. There are many opportunities for leisure. When they developed Kielder Water, they uh, created paths and trails. There's a path 
that runs all the way around the lake which is suitable for both walking and cycling. Um, apparently a quarter of a million people visit there every year but on a uh, cold January afternoon my wife and I walk six and a half miles without meeting a soul. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I have been to the Lake District years ago, which I, one of the things I remember most about that holiday, actually, is uh, that the car exploded halfway up the M6 and... Uh, we had to be rescued and given a hire car to carry on the journey. But it was a really beautiful, beautiful area. We were really lucky with the weather as well, actually, because I think it's not always uh, pleasant. And it's a very great place for uh, intrepid outdoorsy types, which I wouldn't necessarily say that I am. But um, I, fortunately, I didn't have to be too intrepidly outdoorsy uh, for the time that we were were staying there but the the whole area is you know is, is rightfully thought of as you know one of the most beautiful parts of britain i've spent precious little time kind of in the lake district peak district um this is where my kind of urban roots my urban natural habitat you know belies the fact that the old swathes of england which i haven't really visited and and it's definitely somewhere where friends family acquaintances who've been always just you know marvel at, at the beauty of it and stuff so I'm gonna have to write this wrong this bigger mission sometime soon <laughs> we talked about traveling up and down motorways and I remember Claire being I don't know between the ages of definitely let's say six or seven my dad me was sitting in the passenger seat in the front of the car 
this bearing in mind that this was the 1970s when uh, it was legal for six, seven, eight-year-old kids to be in front of cars. And he would hand me a map and he would say, get us from Birmingham to London. And that is one of the key kind of seminal things of my childhood was feeling like I was navigating and understanding that map. Let's just wind back because we're talking about gender and geography in, in this edition of Map Corner. And there are stereotypes around who's into maps, which gender is best understands maps and how they even give instructions on directions. So my kind of first foray really into reading a map was those trips down to London. Remind us how you became um, a lover of maps. I got it from my dad because he's a real map fiend as well. But actually, mm-hmm. I used to love everyone. Everyone had one of those big road maps in the back of the car or underneath the seat or in the seat pocket on the back of one of the front seats of the car. Actually, that's where I remember it being when I was a kid. I would pull it out during journeys and look at follow the route that we were traveling or just look at bits of the map. I can remember many a happy time spent in the uh, back of the car as a child, just, you know, scooting around the map and looking at different bits of the country. You know, I just always really enjoyed putting yourself in a place, really having an understanding of where I was in relation to everything else. I think that's, I don't know, maybe there's something very reassuring about that. Uh, you're not just on some random road and you don't know where you are or where you're going. You can you can see where you are and work it out and see how it relates mm. to other things. Or even, are oh, we nearly there yet? Well, you can tell if you're looking at the map because you can see how far <laughs> you've got left to go. So um, that has been enjoyable for me. And I still do have a big map in my car. I don't always pull it out, but I I quite enjoy it occasionally when I do. Mm. What you've described there is spatial awareness. And that is the key difference, scientists think, that there is between the male brain and the female brain. Everything is on a bell curve. All abilities, all human abilities are on a bell curve. So, of course, there are going to be women who are better at map reading than some men. But if you take the average man, the average women, men have the ability to picture themselves almost in an abstract sense within a space. And then they can project that onto a map. Thinking about this purely anecdotally, my mother, when we're driving to places, not that she was bad at navigating if we were going somewhere new, always wanted to ask people for directions. I'm sure my family was hardly unique in this. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, isn't it kind of quite a um, cliche that uh, men are not very good at asking for directions and uh, mm. women are more willing to. But I think, you know, like you're saying, that, that people's ability to manage the spatial awareness, I think, you know, there's more and more evidence now that that's, basically practice rather than what's innate um and so there's a lot of scientific thinking that actual spatial awareness is is developed uh like any other muscle doing things and playing with toys as a child that develop spatial awareness and that different types of uh skills get developed in different ways and we will hopefully see a more equal dealing with that but uh, mm. you know it, it's 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 cultural perhaps rather than cognitive but it doesn't mean that uh, it's not something that does happen mm. and, I, and i was thinking of that so when i was reading these studies earlier on 
And I was really looking at that element, which is if you say to somebody that you are good at this or you should be good at this or you are bad at this, you get positive or negative kind of kind of reinforcement. And how much of me being age seven and being given that map was me wanting that map or my father reinforcing that I should be able to read the map. And if I'd have been a girl, the chances are, my dad, as progressive as he was back then, wouldn't have put me in the front of the car and thrown me the map and said, read. In fact, I wasn't asked to do that as a, as a small child either. I just took the map because I was interested in it. Mm. Although there was a time when my dad did throw me a map and ask me to navigate when we were driving through southern France. And I would have been, I don't know, probably about 18 or 19, something like that. And... Um, I nearly caused us to have this terrible crash because I told him to take the first exit off the roundabout, forgetting that we were going to go the other way round the roundabout because we were in France. <laughs> <laughs> so he was in this lane. I was like, and he said, are you sure? Are you sure it's that? Because I think he had an instinct that it wasn't that way because um, mm. he appreciated of the driver that he was going that way round the roundabout. And I hadn't really thought about that. I just looked at the map and saw that it was the – and the first, what would have been on a British map, the first exit off the roundabout. Yeah. And, and the problem was we were in a two-car convoy and the others were following us. Um, wow. So it was a bit of a problem. But uh, I think that's about the only time I've got it horribly wrong. And I always like, find it really satisfying when I can kind of trust my instincts sometimes if I'm in a if I'm in a town I know kind of well but in different bits and I you know the first time you drive all the way through somewhere because that you've Mm. never done before I find that really nice and satisfying even when you can't quite orientate yourself or you you go into somewhere which which is new you just know from the position of the sun you go well okay I'm heading west now or I'm I'm heading east but these are all things before we had mobile phones now now we have phones and we have kind of maps on them you know it's not that it's impossible to get lost but it is infinitely harder to get lost now when we all have these uh supercomputers in our pocket or on our dashboards um, of our cars i don't know how long because i resisted having a sat nav for a really long time Mm. um were you an early adopter i guess you might have been no i wasn't because um i haven't had that many cars in my my adult life i fundamentally only had uh two forward slash three and there's been massive gaps uh, between me having them. So, because yeah. um, living in London, didn't really need a car. Well, of course, so, yeah. But one, one of the things which I read on the studies, which I thought was really interesting, apart from apparently there being some basis of difference between the male and the female brain, which I think then is definitely, I think then I completely agree with you, is then compounded by cultural norms, is how men and women actually give directions there is a difference where men are much more clinical in terms of so you go down this road first on the left second on the right type of thing or americans talk about blocks what you know three blocks down and whatever women notice landmarks and will say you get to this place and then you'll see a street next to it and there were loads of studies that actually say that uh, women are much better at landmarks and uh, geographic peculiarities than men. They have a better eye, whereas men, are, it's almost like they've stripped away the extraneous detail 
and they're just giving you it in almost like an Excel spreadsheet way. It's you yeah, know, yeah. And, and that's what I, I saw in these studies all the time, all the time. I think that makes sense because I think if I were giving directions, I would throw in some landmarks because I think it's really easy sometimes if you're driving around to like just miss. If you're, if you're counting streets, it's quite easy to miss one and you go completely wrong. Mm. But if you can only turn at the street that's opposite the big church or something, then that's, it's obvious which one that is. Makes complete sense. But the one thing we, I think we have to recognise is that, and, and you railed against it at the start of the show, didn't you? You were like, like oh, down with the patriarchy and whatever. <laughs> and um, there is no two ways about it, but in the world of exploration and mapping, this has been a male preserve. You know, it's men that have gone out and done the exploring and the conquering, the discovering, mm -hmm. Um, say you know sailing on ships and uh, in a European perspective you know founding colonies first off you know the men do all the swashbuckling stuff and then the women uh, kind of like bring up the rear so it was really good to dig in do a little bit of research and find famous or maybe not so famous uh, intrepid female explorers and the first one that I came by was Gudrid, and her surname starts with Thor. Then after that, folks, I give up, right? But she was an Icelandic badass um, from circa 980. It was on that first expedition from Iceland to Greenland. And the amazing thing is about her story is that you think now that a lot of people are very mobile and travel travel the globe. But she was born in Iceland, went to Greenland. She gave birth to the first European to be born in North America. Wow. Did you say that Greenland isn't North America? No, technically it is. But you know, she went to, to, went to Greenland with that first expedition, had a son, and she was really key in trying to set up that colony. The Vikings get a bad rap, but for their time, they were quite egalitarian. You know, women could be warriors and women could go and sail on, on ship and, and discover stuff. But the amazing thing is about her, so she's born in Iceland in 980. She goes off to Greenland, then Vinland, so North America. And before she dies, she converts to Catholicism and she goes to Rome. I cannot conceive wow. of that life, what she must have seen in a world without the internet and TV and photographs, to be somebody who's born in rural Iceland, to have gone to Greenland, to try and set up that colony, and then to go and meet the Pope before you die. You just cannot conceive of, That's of a such lot a of life. Travel. Of that era that is, as well, you know. That is a lot of travel, and we're talking about just wind power. There's no steam yeah. power paddling you along at a faster clip. And she is written about in the Icelandic sagas. She really has a place in Icelandic mythology. Yeah, another kind of notable explorer who I came by was Jeanne Barr, and she was French. So she's in the 1740s, in the age of pirates. And she wanted to circumnavigate the world. And back then, the French Navy said women just were not allowed to get on ships, period, full stop. So she had to disguise herself as a bloke. 
And, you know, mm-hmm. you always hear these kind of pirate stories and stuff. And there's, you know, there's always uh, somebody claiming to be sort of a teenage boy, isn't there? Who's actually uh, a girl who's kind of like, yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of stowed away. She was the original one. She actually did it and managed to circumnavigate the world. Though her story gets a little bit kind of confused because uh, as to when she was actually discovered, but she was discovered before the ship came back to France that actually she uh, had bound her breasts and actually she was actually female. But she came back um, somewhat of a hero. Again, I just can't imagine the the lengths that she must have gone just to hide her her gender. Because I'm thinking back then, the whole toilet part of things was a pretty yeah. public thing. You literally not just a lot put of your... personal space on a ship. Not really. Literally, what people did was just put their backsides out of a out of a window, didn't they? Out of a porthole, and you just did your business. <laughs> you know. So how she managed to even disguise that for any manner of time, heaven only knows. But she did. Those early female travellers and explorers had so many things to to get over on top of the inherent lack of technology of the time and how dangerous it would have been to travel. And and it's kind of one of the problems when we look at exploration, we look at it very much through a Western lens. So if you're just going to do the most cursory of Google searches, invariably these are British, French, Australian, Dutch, German women, Austrian women who travelled. These aren't African women or Asian women because uh, European culture, in effect, is what's actually mapped the world. And I know we kind of talked about this before through Polynesians and, and kind of travel. Western means of mapping the world and travelling and traversing the globe have become the standard. It's been written that this is kind of what's happened. And and with that in mind, women of colour are scantly kind of like represented on this list. You know, those stories and those stories must be out there are just utterly lost to us. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's, you know, there are a number of factors, isn't there, about um, the kind of presence of uh, women cartographers or explorers or whatever. And partly it's who... Yeah, p- partly it's about kind of education and 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 where people's interests are pushed, uh, but it's also about who's who's remembered. Um, so that there, there are when you go digging for them, there are those role models out there, but it takes a lot of digging. So I, I found mm. a story about a, uh, a native Canadian Beothuk tribes person called Shanordithit uh, who was one of the last of her tribe in mm-hmm. the early 1800s. And she was a map maker. And that tribe was one of the very first tribes to develop any contact with Europeans in the 1500s, actually. Gave rise to the concept of a red Indian because they were using red colouring, a dye and colouring on their skin. She did these amazing maps to map out the history and the, the kind of geography of her tribe and she was about the last one of it and if it wasn't for her we would have very little of some of that and these are not people who've always made the narrative in the in the places because you know 19th century Canada was not a place for 
native women, particularly. It's only later that people have gone back and found those stories. And one of the things about the whole world of mapping and discovery is that those kind of inherent cultural biases against women being able just to travel. You still have in Saudi Arabia, I think the law was changed last year, the year before, that a woman mm -hmm. couldn't travel without a male in her family signing and saying she could actually leave, leave the country. And, yeah. you know, that's 2019. So if you're talking about, I don't know, 1832, to see Isabella Bird, who travelled by herself throughout North America, Hawaii, Japan, Korea, China, Vietnam, the cultural shock of, number one, a woman wanting to do that, and number two, yeah. a woman turn up on her own in these places, which then would have been incredibly remote and not connected to each other, must have been utterly profound. This is a white woman, a white person, sorry, in rural China in the middle of the 19th century. And then this white person was a woman. So yeah. you really do have to um, applaud the bravery of, uh, of these women that went out to see the world and to see it on their own terms. Where are you going on holiday this year, Claire? Oh, I don't know. We haven't really decided yet. Anywhere? Possibly. All right. Nowhere particularly far-flung. No, well, we did far-flung last year, to be fair. I've got to keep my carbon footprint down now. Hmm. So where did you go last year? Went to Australia last year. Oh, of course. Crumbs. And we came with you. <laughs> Queensland and Perth. I did Perth. <laughs> You did, you did, you did, you did. Um, and whilst you were travelling, and you were travelling, let's say, north to south, did you ever turn the map upside down? Not that I remember, but I know I have done it. Um, I tell you, one of the things I don't like now about when you can follow a map on your phone is mm -hmm. sometimes it doesn't always do that naturally. I don't know. It, I, I sometimes find following a map on my phone when I'm walking through a city especially not a very uh, fantastic experience. And those, those are the times when I'd rather have a paper map sometimes um, because you can see – more detail and you can hold it any which way you like as well which also helps so <laughs> mm. well, how there, about yourself have you turned a map upside down i have i have the older i get i will admit the more i'm prone just to turn it upside down uh, something i didn't even ever think of doing uh when, when i was much younger uh, but the whole google maps thing and having walking directions is fraught because if you are driving let's say if you are heading in the wrong direction from what the the, the directions are telling you you realize yeah. very quickly you realize very quickly because um you you know th that blue line keeps on extending and you go you're going the wrong way if you're walking because you're walking at a much slower speed, uh, you can yeah. be walking for a good three or four minutes before you realise I'm walking in the wrong direction. Yes. And and Google are trying to trying to fix that. And there is some kind of spatial map thing that they do now that I'm trying to do this from memory because I realised I was in San Francisco and I need to have walking directions about three months ago somewhere. And there's this new thing which very clearly said, you are facing this way. I was mm -hmm. like, oh, all right, because it knows that 
this is actually an inherent problem from walking walking instructions because the gps isn't actually that correct so you can be going as i said a good couple of minutes or so uh, before yeah. you realize actually you're in the wrong direction uh, but you know what we should do though claire uh, before we before we witter on any more about uh, women and mapping we should maybe yeah. hear from our one female caller it's pat who is responding to a call from last month Hi, this is Pat calling from 4149 North, 8157 West, which is Cleveland Heights, Ohio. Everyone mentioned beautiful Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, so I'd like to add my pitch for cemeteries as parks and public green spaces. Unlike British churchyards, the great rural, well, now urban, cemeteries of the United States started with the intention to keep them quite park-like. The first of these was Mount Auburn Cemetery in Boston, started in 1831 when there was some risk that Boston Common was going to be developed. That was well before Central Park. I've lived in both Buffalo and Cleveland and know their beautiful cemeteries the best. Forest Lawn in Buffalo was founded in 1849. The model was the Père Lachaise Cemetery, which is on an estate outside Paris. Forest Lawn's a beautiful place full of rolling hills, lovely ponds, and winding roadways intended for a Sunday afternoon carriage ride and picnic. It's almost folded into the Buffalo Park system, which was designed by Frederick Law Olmsted. President Millard Fillmore is buried there. My husband's family goes way back in Buffalo history, so we have our spots picked out under some big trees on top of a hill where, as my mother-in-law says with satisfaction, will drain onto the people lower down. In Cleveland, I love a stroll or drive around Lakeview Cemetery, founded in 1869. There's a grand tomb and memorial to President James Garfield, and Wade Memorial Chapel was designed by Louis Comfort Tiffany. Stone-cutting artisans came from Italy to work on the monuments at Lakeview, so we have the cemetery to thank for a still-thriving Little Italy neighborhood just down the hill. Both Forest Lawn and Lakeview are still open to the public and offer history tours, concerts and other community events and they're just great places to stroll through the trees ponds and gardens and commune with the people of the path oh two minutes slightly caught you out there pat but thank you for that lovely call indeed Mm. have you chosen your burial spot royfield um i have some ridiculously romantic notion and uh it's going to involve a whole load of effort by my nearest and dearest. Uh, so I'm going to have to revise it and revise it Are down. you a bird at sea person? <laughs> I've that. That is a lot of work. Well, no. Well, I want to be cremated because I don't see the point of having uh, my, my body just like hang around and, and kind of decompose. When you're dead, you're dead. I'm just like, burn me, burn me to a crisp. I'm quite happy with that. This used to be my notion. I haven't thought about this in, in a little while, actually. But I used to say I wanted to be uh, cremated and have my ashes, part of them spread in Birmingham, the other half in London, in Notting Hill, and then the other half, and then the other third. How many halves have you got? Well, exactly. I did correct myself <laughs> afterwards. And then um, another, an, another third in Jamaica. Uh, but now I'd 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 want to be uh, quartered, so to speak, not quite humdrum and quartered, but because I'd go well, I, I have so much love for California that I don't. But it's just nonsense. It's never going to happen. So I don't know. Wherever well, I drop down I mean, dead, there's one aspect that is going to happen, Royfield. It happens to all of us. Well, no, <laughs> I know what you mean. Wherever <laughs> I drop down dead, burn me there and scatter my ashes there. But um, Fair enough. 
yeah 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 so so that's me what about you um well i am registered to donate my body to medical science for uh Ooh. the use of medical students uh, my granddad did it and then he died at 92 93 about five years ago now um and because we knew he'd always wanted to do this yeah it was quite easy to sort out actually and um and after that, and we had a memorial service in the church and he's got a kind of bench in the churchyard and stuff. His body went off to uh, a university and that's what he wanted. And actually, since then, I've registered to do it. And also other people in my family have registered to do it as well. So I had a quite complicated conversation with the uh, organ donor services mm. last week because the law's changing over here that there's a presumption in favour of donation. But you, you can't do both. <laughs> you, can, you, know, you can either donate your whole self and if they don't want me, then they can have any other any organ they like. But um, the the, uh, the medical school gets first dibs and, and the new donor arrangements don't cope with that scenario brilliantly well. You can cut all this out. This is not interesting. No, no, no. It, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And actually, it shows you how inconsistent my thinking has actually been on this whole uh, what happens when I die thing. Because I used to have an organ donor card in the 80s and the 90s in my wallet all the time. Mm-hmm. If you were to ask me, do I want to donate my organs after I die? I go, yes. Then you ask me, how do I want to, uh, what do I want to happen to my body after I die? Then I go, cremated. It's only now that I've actually put the two things together, actually listening to you. The only interesting thing that I, I heard the other day, a friend of mine was saying, um, and she's a, a nurse um, in kind of management over here, and she said to me that um, when people donate their organs they presume they think they wish they hope that it's going to be the corneas on their eyes it's going to be their heart uh, it's going to be um a sexy organ and she says you know what it is most of the time it's like tendons oh. it's yeah she said it's very prosaic bits of your body which you wouldn't think so it's like tendons in knees and in ankles and, and things like that that actually uh, really do get donated and and of course you don't you don't hear about that yeah. but it's, it's, it's a lot of the time it's those boring bits that we've got it's not the eyes it's not the, not the heart etc that's what we want to donate but yeah well done to your grandpops was he an asprey no he was a keech yeah it's my maternal granddad so that is a wonderful surname as in stacy keech <laughs> the actor the old actor Oh, I don't know. There, I think it's a, it's, it's not an unusual name in the area, uh, but in fact, our hospice in the Bedfordshire is Keach, Keach Cottage Hospice. I don't think that's any relation to me, but there are a number of Keaches around in this area. I'm sure that it actually is related to you. Just you just need to go back far enough to find. I suppose, yeah. Find the link. You know, if it's if uh, a name is clustered in an area. Well, it almost definitely is related to you. But anyway, uh, I I digress. We're keeping this show nice and tight this week. So uh, it's gender and geography. So I'm presuming, Claire, that you're going to come out with your map fact, which is gender and geography laden. Well, now you say that and there are some (laughs) marvellous gender related (laughs) map facts. But then I saw this one and I couldn't resist it. Um, Mm. And it is that... um, Jigsaw puzzles mm-hmm. were invented in the 1760s, and the first jigsaw puzzles were all maps. 
Like that's what they did. That's what the jigsaw puzzle oh. was. And then they were they would put a map on a piece of board and cut it into bits, and uh, and they used it to teach people geography by asking them to reassemble it. And um, that really spoke to me because I had a number of uh, map jigsaws when I was younger. In fact, I think mm-hmm. we still have one somewhere. Um, and there's something really fun about a map jigsaw because again it's like putting the world to rights isn't it when you put it all in the right place um but i had no idea that the like it wasn't like we had picture jigsaws at the start jigsaws were invented uh in order to uh, teach people geography by putting maps on them that was a way of learning about the world and i suppose that a kind of a women related mole gender related map facts are from that is that this I saw some amazing stuff around from the sort of late 1800s to the mid 1900s. So it's a very big fashion for girls to do globes and embroidery maps, mm-hmm. uh, needlework maps. And in fact, I think Catherine Rowan Jones shared some of these early on she in, the, in yeah. the podcast. And interestingly enough, because of the patriarchy, um, they they were never really considered uh, sort of worth studying as maps, although they were quite a substantial contribution to the kind of geographical awareness of uh, of a whole family where they had a uh, embroidered map or globe. So um, it was often a kind of real kind of contribution to society where those were done. So there's a there's a gender related map fact, but I couldn't resist the jigsaws because it was such a fun fact. Absolutely, it was a fun fact, and I've properly learnt something there. What's been happening on the socials in the last month? Interestingly enough, on the Twitters, uh, Catherine Rowan Jones has sent uh, us a picture of a stick map, which again is uh, like the seafaring navigation tools uh, which we discussed last time, and it's just a thing of beauty. It's sticks and tiny shells sort of laying out I guess currents and islands and so on um mm. it's just so impressive so uh, that was one that was really interesting in the on the twitters uh in terms of the facebook group the most sort of engaged with uh post was the one that you did Royfield around uh, encouraging people to share the outlines of countries and guess what they are mm. um so that that got a lot of a uh, a lot of uh, feedback and uh, an interest, uh, and we've had some really interesting discussions on that group. Mm. We need to breathe life back into that thread, though. I kind of saw that as the ideal thread, just to keep running and running. However, yeah. um, yokel bear black marks for you, sir. Right by he, he <laughs> threw in um, a, a made up place, didn't he? I can't remember. It was Middle Earth or something or another. <laughs> That is a bit hard. That That's a bit unfair. Very unfair. Very unfair. You know, I, I started out with uh, the outline of Mongolia and I thought, you know, I, I, you know, this will this will sort out the wheat from the chaff. And of course, the very first person who responded got it within like three minutes. And yeah, they yeah, were yeah, no, they're hanging around. They're smart people, these map corner folks. Yeah. Until Yokel Bear comes along and completely utterly flunks everybody and then says, oh, yeah, it's made up this one. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> So, yeah, so we've had some really, um, we've had quite a lot of people sharing lots of different things about languages, uh, um, the real basic sort of things to understand about uh, when you go to France, which which cheek do you kiss first? So we have uh, Ken McDonald to um, thank for that, so that if we if I do go to France on holiday, I'll at least have to look at the map and know 
which which way to head for in terms of uh, kissing the locals, that would be important. I think one that got some interesting. Um, would you remember which local you've actually kissed? Because I know this is an issue <laughs> for you, isn't it? I, mean, I was talking about sort of general sort of greetings in the French uh, style. So, as opposed to your first kiss, which you can't remember who that was. Yeah. Uh, unromantic soul that I am. Well, that's not entirely fair, but there you go. Actually, and another kind you of... Said it, not me, you know. I didn't call you an unromantic <laughs> soul. You, you know, you're, having, you're having a conversation with yourself here, Mrs. I'm, I'm just an innocent bystander. <laughs> anyway... So, yeah, but I mean, I suppose also we had a really great post from Michelle Green, um, which was about tattoos on hand, the hands of some women, which again is around bringing together the themes of gender and the kind of seafaring maps and, and the kind of brilliant uh, navigational skills of uh, Pacific Islanders. It just shows how the uh, women held a lot of navigational prowess in that culture. So, again, our understanding of who's good at maps is is very culturally specific, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, that's uh, that was one to 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 watch, and, and that's a really interesting article around that as well. So, as we go into an interesting time for the world, we've we've seen our first coronavirus map posted to the Facebook group. So I think that's definitely something that we will follow up on next month to see where things are at. I think that'd be a very, very, very uh, wise and appropriately uh, time-sensitive thing for us to do. So are we just about done? Uh, Can we start to fold up our maps? We can fold up our maps. Well, don't forget, folks, just before we completely and utterly go, mapcorner.space, that is the website where you can go and uh, catch up with all the back episodes of the show uh you can also write comments on uh previous episodes there you can go onto facebook type in map corner and you'll find um, a nice little thriving community of mapaholics carter files on um, facebook you can follow me on twitter where i'm at royfield and claire where are you i'm at claire j astbury and the hashtag if you have anything clever, interesting or confounding uh, to do with the world of geography mapping is hashtag map corner. Have I forgotten anything, Claire, or can we just skedaddle? I think we're ready to fold up our maps. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.